Morning. Good to be with you guys. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. If you're new to the Bible, that is the last book in the New Testament. So just take a hard right all the way to the end. You'll find it. We are finishing the letters this week, and then uh, we will have two weeks really being caught up into heaven and seeing what's going on in heaven uh, after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended. A vision of the Father, a vision of the Son, and then in chapter 6, things change again, the scroll that Jesus opens begins to unfold in the history of the world. So read with me uh, Revelation three fourteen through 22. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are, neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pity, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him And eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and it reminds me as we move through these letters and finish the letters that our basic posture before you always needs to be neediness. Help us never forget that as a church, Lord, that we are needy. And so we pray, we pray together for the ministries of this church, that there is one head, Jesus Christ, we are the body and we are the hands and feet. We are administering the word by the power of the Spirit. And so we pray for the ministries of our church. We pray for our children's ministry. We pray for uh, power to be in that ministry, for conversion of our young people. We pray for boldness and biblical teaching among our leaders and volunteers. We pray for scripture memory to be happening among our kids, that they would store up your word in their hearts, that they might not sin against you. Lord, we pray for our youth ministry. We pray that uh, we would be equipping and training young men and women to go out into the world to be pillars in churches for Jesus, to to spread the gospel on campuses and in workplaces. But we pray for our life groups, 
We pray for sweet fellowship. We pray for bearing of one another's burdens. We pray for prayer that would be uplifting and encouraging. We pray for bonds of fellowship and unity to form. We pray for our Sunday school. We pray that the word would be taught faithfully over and over again. Lord, we pray for our quilting ministry. We pray that uh, people would feel the love of Jesus through those quilts, that they, their, their lives would be prayed over and you would respond to those, those prayers and act powerfully for your glory. Lord, we pray for our Sunday worship. We pray that it would be a sweet aroma to you and life-giving to us. Lord, this is where we need to be every Sunday because we need you. So would you continue to bless these gatherings? Would you continue to bless us, Lord, with your presence and your power? Lord, we pray for our leadership, our staff. We pray for integrity. pray for character. We pray that we would not turn away from the narrow path, that we would lead well according to the word that we would be gentle and lowly of heart, like Jesus. Lord, all the ministries of our church that we are seeking to faithfully carry out in your name and by your spirit, we pray for your blessing. Lord, if we don't ask, we can't expect great things. We have to ask. We pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that Um, my words and my thoughts would be pleasing to you and that you would say only what you want to say and guard my mouth from anything that would not be of you, Lord. We thank you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Seventh letter today, that number is intentional, symbolizing completeness, wholeness of the church. So as we talk about this, we've been talking about it with our kids of, of uh, why are there seven and why are they different? And it really represents all churches, all times, all places in some ways or another. There's something we can take from everyone, isn't there, that relates to us? And, and that's what the seven represents, is it's for the completed whole church. And It's important to remember as we think about this, Jesus is communicating from heaven. (laughs) Just like pause there. Jesus is communicating from heaven. That's what we're getting here. Through angels, through the Apostle John, so that we can understand from his perspective in heaven what's happening. I mean, I think if he just told us or showed us, it might be overwhelming, but this is the uh, the, the method of revelation, it's coming. You remember chapter 1. It's from the Father, through the Son, through angels, through John, to us in the, in the Word. As we come to Laodicea, this is a church founded probably by Paul, or at least his ministry in, in the area of Ephesus. So he was very active in this area. Um, and Laodicea is spoken of in his letter to the Colossians. So Colossians 4, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans 
and see you also see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So it seems this church was founded maybe 40 years before this moment when they're getting this letter. Um, and there may have been a letter sent directly from Paul to them, the letter from the Laodiceans. So if, if that's true, we don't have that letter. The Lord did not decide to uh, make that part of the canon of Scripture. Some think it may be the letter to the Ephesians, that it was just circulating, which we know uh, that happened with a lot of these letters. So we're not sure, but here's the point. The church has been around for a while, and they're not doing well. I mean, that Paul has been active. They've had probably, at least Colossians, they've, they've heard, read in, in church, probably Ephesians. Maybe they had their own letter that Paul wrote, and they're not doing well. The problem for Laodicea is that they looked good, but they weren't doing good. In the world's eyes, they were very impressive. In God's eyes, they were impoverished. From a human point of view, these people are healthy, wealthy, living in a beautiful city. Life is good. But from God's point of view, they're not useful. They're not helpful in advancing a kingdom that is not of this world. If the kingdom was of this world, they would be like top of the class. But it's not. I was thinking about this, and it got me thinking of the tuxedo hanging in my closet. Obviously, natural, naturally you'd think of that. Um, and I was thinking about my tuxedo because when Carrie and I got married, uh, I had the bright idea that I wasn't going to rent a tux. I, I needed to buy it because I'm constantly going to parties and things where I need a tuxedo. So better to buy it, obviously, uh, so that you have it and you can wear it all the time because you need, you need it. You need a tuxedo. How many, I mean, you guys are wearing tuxes all the time, right? Do you ever um, look back at decisions you made and just kind of like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking when I made that decision? I don't know. Why would I spend $400 on a tux that I will, I will never wear again? Like the clothes that we wore in the 90s. You know, what were we thinking? I'm not a triple XL. Like I'm 130 pounds soaking wet. I don't see either here nor there. But for 15 years, that tuxedo has sat in my closet. It looks good. It's snappy, it's nice, it's not very useful. To Jesus, the Laodiceans were like that. They looked good, not very useful. He looks at them and says, yeah, um, what is the point of you? What would you say you do here? What are you doing for my kingdom? I don't see any fruit. I see a lot of pride, but I don't see a lot of fruit. He's frustrated. Sometimes when I walk by that tux, I get frustrated. I mean, that money's already gone. I can't get it back, but I get frustrated. He does not doing anything. Jesus is not looking for tuxedo country club Christians. He's looking for old sweatshirt Christians. People who may not have much or look like much, but they're useful. 
willing to be worn out for Jesus, willing to give their life away for the gospel, willing to get their hands dirty in service like an old sweatshirt. That's who he's looking for. That's what he wants. Who he praises in these letters is people like that. And it's not about how much money you have financially, economically, where you're at. That's not the point. The question is, do you identify with that? Is that who you are? Is that what you're about? Is that what you think Christianity is about? It's just kind of looking the part. None of us are immune to pride. None of us are immune to thinking, we, you know, compared to we're, mm, none of us are immune to that. I don't care if you're rich, poor, or in the middle. So we need to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. First, the problem. There's no praise. <laughs> the problem, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen The faithful and true witness, the beginning or source or ruler is the meaning there, of God's creation. Jesus chooses to identify himself this way to communicate his authority. He is in control, not the rich people. The city of Laodicea actually sat up on a hill, so literally you look down on everyone around you if you lived in that city. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, I'm looking down on you. Don't think you're above everyone else because there's someone above you. That's me. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that or I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What Jesus is doing here is communicating spiritual truth in a way that they'll understand. A way they would get. Um, He's contextualizing without compromising. He's bringing it into their context, but he's not compromising the message. Here's the big idea. Hot water, good. Cold water, good. Lukewarm water, bad. In that day, Laodicea was rich. This is the Beverly Hills of the ancient Near East. But it had a water problem, namely that it didn't have any. There was no water. So what they did, I don't know who founded the city, but, you know, these are things to think through. Um, To the north, the town of Hierapolis, they would bring in hot water. Hierapolis was famous for uh, their their hot water, uh, like medicinal, you know, hot springs kind of thing. People would go there, uh, bathe in the hot water. So they bring that in via aqueduct to help with their water supply. Then to the southeast, you had Colossae, which had natural, pure springs, and they would bring that water in for drinking water. So hot water from up north, good. You like hot tea? You like hot coffee in the winter? You like a hot shower? Cold water, good. You You like cold drinking water, iced tea, iced coffee in the summer, a nice jump in the pool? On a hot day. But lukewarm water is useless. It's frustrating. After a long day, all you want to do is take a hot shower and the water's lukewarm. Who's the dead person who took a 30-minute shower? So now my water's lukewarm. Says I in January. 
It's frustrating. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. If you had, we, I didn't think of it in time, but we should have made the coffee lukewarm so that we could see all of your anger this morning. That would have been a great idea. Uh, someone had it, told me, I'm like, ah, my mind just doesn't think like that. But that would have made the point. It's frustrating. It's just make it hot or make it cold. One or the other. Lukewarm is pointless. Lukewarm pop, does anybody like that? I, not really. Make it cold. Jesus is telling these Laodiceans, your church is like that. You are like that. Lukewarm. And he says, I feel like I'm drinking lukewarm salt water. It makes me sick. I want to throw up. Spiritually, you make me want to vomit. Not what you want to hear from Jesus. He's frustrated. Are you a lukewarm Christian? Maybe you show up at church once in a while, Christmas, Easter, that sort of thing. Maybe you make a social media post and reference God. Maybe you listen to a little Christian radio in the car. But you're uncomfortable getting too serious about all this. You're not really interested in a God who is storming the gates of hell and plundering the kingdom of darkness, like, whoa, that's a bit much, okay? I, I like to keep this a little more at arm's length, stay comfortable, safe in my quasi-Christian life. You know, if you had to fill out a form on what religion are you, you'd say Christian, but it's hard to tell. You're not very useful. You're not involved. You're not engaged. That's what it means to be lukewarm. Be hot, be cold, but don't be lukewarm. Really in or or out. This is a problem for the church, generally the church, when it comes to young people, as I see it. We produce a lot of lukewarm Christians who get out of high school and quit. Maybe they come back because, you know, the kids really should go to Sunday school. Good for the kids. You know, we need to, we should probably go. But this is what we're producing, and the statistics bear that out, that we're not retaining a lot of our kids when they leave high school, when they leave the home. Um, and I think part of the problem is we coddle them. We coddle them. We give them the PG version of the Bible. We wean them on veggie tales, and then they graduate to a, uh, you know, entertaining, cool youth group uh, with a, a, a hip youth pastor who has a mustache and too much product in his hair. Uh, we don't have that problem, but but a lot of churches do. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. I'm looking over here. <laughs> Uh, we give them G-rated Jesus. We don't give them the Jesus of Revelation. You ever talk to your kids about this Jesus? We domesticate him. We say, if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, Jesus will help you out. He'll be good to you. He's a nice guy. He's, He's kind of like a butler, that when you need something, he'll go and get it for you. It's what we teach our kids, like 
why are we surprised? Why are we surprised that they grow up and they leave and they act more like Pharisees than Christians? They need the R-rated Bible. They need the R-rated real Jesus is what they need. They need honesty. Do you know young people respond to honesty? Be real with them. Tell them the truth. Get it out there. You don't think the world is trying to disciple them and telling them, okay, here's how it is, really, and getting in their face about it? And we're so petrified that we might offend a child, we might upset them a little bit? If babies start crying, I know I'm hitting the mark here. What are we so afraid of with young people? Why aren't we honest? Why aren't we straightforward? Why are we hesitating to be clear with them? They need clarity. Clarity on sin and salvation, law and gospel, life and death, heaven and hell. They need to know. That's what produces real Christians, not lukewarm Christians. If you coddle them, they will be lukewarm. If you treat that, look, they, they get more than we think. Like, I have kids. I've seen it. My four or five-year-old kids, as they're going through the phase, like, wow. If you push them, if you're real with them, if you're honest, they get it. Don't talk baby talk to them. Don't make the Bible a bunch of silly stories. It's a joke. Why wouldn't they think it's a joke? And I praise God for our children's ministry and our youth ministry because we have fantastic leaders and fantastic volunteers who do a fantastic job of balancing having fun, okay? We're not the fun police. Like, why are you laughing? You should be praying. No, we, we should have fun. But they're also serious. We're serious about God. We're honest about the Bible. This is what it means. This is what it says. You remember when we went through Esther and it was like, whoa, that's not what I was taught in Sunday school. So let me speak to the kids, the young adults, for a minute. And I'll, I'm going to follow Francis Schaeffer's advice and spend most of my time giving you the bad news uh, before I give you the good news. That I think that's, that's how we make disciples. So kids, young people... Apart from trusting Jesus, apart from him working in your life to change you, this is who you are. Let me be clear. This is what God sees inside of you, outside of Jesus being in your life. You are selfish, self-absorbed, consumed with getting what you want. You are greedy, lazy. You eat too much and you hate to share. You make fun of others behind their back to make yourself feel better. Like Satan, you're a liar. You practice sexual sin. You look at pornography. You fill your minds with vulgar things. You love being on social media more than you love being with those who bear the image of God. Young ladies, you crave the attention of men, so you dress immodestly to get it. Young men, you look at women as objects instead of sisters or mothers. You hate your brothers and sisters. You murder them with bullets of anger fired from your heart. 
You make fun of Christians or pretend not to be one when it suits you. You crave and beg and whine for what money can buy, but you have no interest in heavenly riches. You love the world in its darkness and hate the light of Jesus. You blame others for your sin. You're too proud to admit you did anything wrong. You are never slow to speak. You have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with criticism, sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your your mouth is a fountain of curse words and complaining and judging. You disobey, mock, and dishonor your parents. God sends people to hell for that. You have no self-control. You are anxious and don't trust God. The list goes on and on and on. And Jesus hates these things inside of you. They make him want to throw up. This is why hell exists. Young people, how much do you need Jesus? A little? Or a lot? Here's the good news. For every one of those sins, Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross for you. All his anger pent up like a dam waiting to break for your lukewarmness. Jesus drank that cup dry. Do you believe? Kids, do you believe? Will you repent? Will you say, I am a sinner? Have mercy on me, O God. Save me. Forgive me. Help me. Kids, I love you. We love you. And it's not loving to coddle you and not tell you the truth. Because if you're not that bad, Jesus won't be that good to you. Until sin is bitter in your life, Jesus will not be sweet. That is the truth. Hear his promise. Hear his promise with fresh ears so that you don't become a tuxedo Christian. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. Amen. Verse 17. Look at it with me. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't see yourself as you really are. To the world, you look impressive. To me, you're in the fetal position on the ground, naked. I counsel you to buy me gold. From me, gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. 
These Christians forgot that our basic condition is neediness. They think they don't need anything. <laughs> we don't need anything. And for a Christian, for a church, this can happen when everything goes your way, when you don't suffer much, when God doesn't bring hard things into your life. If you don't know the recent history of our church, we, we love, we've just new people coming in, and, and um, maybe you don't know the recent history, but in the early 2000s, we had a long-term pastor who left and moved on, and uh, that led to 10-plus years of uh, a number of pastors who came and went, and a lot of interim pastors, and a lot of people leaving the church. If you were here during that time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was a difficult time for our church. Painful, I think, in many ways, as I've gotten to know it. We were at our prayer meeting this week talking about the church and a variety of things, and, and Jackie said something really profound. She said, you know, I don't think we'd be as healthy as we are today if we hadn't have gone through the hard times. That's exactly right. That is exactly how God works. The bones that he breaks, he means to mend them so they're stronger. That's why you can rejoice when he breaks a bone, when he brings something hard into your life. So we want to be thankful for the good seasons. We want to rejoice in them, enjoy them. Absolutely. But let's not forget, we're always needy. We always need God's grace. Not just when things are really hard and difficult. Always. Because we don't want to end up like this. High on our horse. We don't need anything. We're good. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. There it is. Jesus hasn't given up on these people. He's so patient. He's so patient. I would have given up on him. If he's loving you and you need it, he will bring pain into your life to wake you up and help you repent. Do you believe that? If he doesn't love you and he's judging you, he will give you everything you want. Understand hell is getting everything you want. The people in hell right now are getting everything they want. No God. Me, alone, doing whatever I feel like doing. In one very real sense, that is hell. So if God gives you everything you want in your flesh, that's a judgment. That's not love. Those he loves, he disciplines, he reproves. He brings pain into your life to get your attention. So is God trying to get your attention? Is he bringing things into your life? It's like, whoa, what? This is happening and this is happening and this is happening. What is God trying to say to me here? Maybe you need to repent of something. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said, Faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly to heaven. It's essential. So I want to develop 
repentance a little bit, and, and Watson's book is really helpful, The Doctrine of Repentance. So let me give you four elements that he brings out on the nature of true repentance. Number one, sight of sin. Sight of sin. And in some ways, that's the hardest. Uh, in order to treat the cancer, you kind of got to know it's there. If you got rotting wood in your house, you need to know where it is in order to get rid of it. This is when the prodigal son came to himself. He came to himself while eating pig food. Oh, maybe this is my fault that I'm in this situation. Maybe it's not dad's fault. Maybe it's mine. Ask the Holy Spirit, reveal my sin to me. Ask those who know you, be honest. Do you see this in me? When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you asked someone who who knows you, invited correction? When was the last time anyone corrected you ever on anything, challenged you on anything? If it's been like a decade, that is a bad sign. Sometimes people get so insulated from any kind of challenge or criticism or critique that they don't even know how to take it anymore. It's like they're, 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 they'll get so angry because they've created this bubble and this wall around themselves. I've seen it happen. Or it's like they don't even remember what repentance is. Professing Christians. Don't ever let yourself get to that place. Number one, you want to be approachable so people feel comfortable to come and challenge you on things, but you also want to invite it. I was uh, spending some time recently with one of my girls, one-on-one. We try to do that. And I asked her, um, is there anything you see in dad's life that, that I need to grow in? Any, anything, you know, could be better. And she, really, she didn't hesitate long enough to make me feel comfortable about that. It was like such a quick response. That's like, hmm, that's interesting. She said, dad, yeah, um... I noticed that a lot of times you, um, you kind of have what you want to do and the family does what you want to do, but you don't really ask, what does everyone else want to do? Well, that felt like swallowing a nail. Okay, it was not fun, but I need that. Thought about it like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I think you're right. I could think of examples. Yeah, yeah, I need to lay down my preferences more. Um, we need that. I need that from time to time. I need a good challenge. In your marriage, you need a good challenge from each other. In love, hopefully not in anger, gently, but we need it. We can't repent of what we don't see. Number two, sorrow for sin. Sight for sin, sorrow for sin. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You're broken. As a Christian, you shed tears over your sin because you know that's what put Jesus on the cross. You know that. You're aware of that. You and your sin took the spear and put it in his side. That should hurt you. That should bother you. That should affect you. Watson says, godly sorrows show itself when a Christian knows that he is out of the gunshot of hell, shall never be damned, yet still grieves for sinning against the free grace 
which has pardoned him. Grace is not cheap. Let's not act like it was. Number, number three, confession of sin. As the prodigal came to his father and confessed, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You have to say it. You have to say it out loud to other people, to the Lord. You just In your prayer life, when you confess sin, say it out loud. Not generally, but specifically. You have to tell the doctor where it hurts. You have to tell him what you did so he can heal you. And thankfully, the Lord doesn't reveal all our sins at once or ever all our sins, thankfully, because you'd be devastated. You'd, you'd, you'd fall down dead uh, if he showed you everything at once. But he's patient. And when he does show us something, we need to confess it. It's hard. Teach this to your kids. You know, it's not enough to say sorry. Sorry for what exactly? Well, that thing I did. And what was that thing? Well, something I shouldn't have done. Well, yeah, well, but she, no, no, no ifs, ands, or buts. Just what'd you do? Name it. Say it out loud. Say it. Don't look at me. Look at the person you sinned against, kid. Say it to them. Own it. Because only when you own it can you be forgiven of it. If you didn't really do anything, why do you need forgiveness? Why do you need Jesus when you boil it down? Be specific. Number four, turn from sin to Jesus. Ezekiel 14, 6, Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols. Turn away your faces from all your detestable sins. Repentance is turning. Like you're driving over a cliff and you turn the steering wheel back onto the road. You turn. I never want to do this again, Lord. I hate it. I hate it. I never want to do this again. I know where it leads. I know how it hurts you. And when you turn to God, you don't find a pointed finger. You find open arms. Like the father in the prodigal son, he cuts him off in the middle of his confession to say, I love you. That's the father's heart for you. No, that's enough. I, I, I heard you. I love you. I forgive you. God not only forgives your sins, but get ready for this. He forgets them. Now, we, on a human level, really can't even do that with each other. To say, you know, forgive and forget, what a lie. You can't forget. But God says in his word, he forgives and he forgets. Watson says, I will remember their sins no more. <laughs> I won't even remember them. It's like you didn't do them because of Jesus. God has cast your sins into the depths of the sea, not as cork, but as lead. When he pardons, God is a creditor that blots the debt out of his book. It's not there anymore. Such good news. And when you're pardoned like that, when you are, when you are treated like that, when you are loved like that, go and sin no more. Why would you sin against that God who's that good to you? 
Do works now in keeping with repentance. So you said it, you confessed it, you prayed it, you felt it. Now act like it. How could you not? How could you not if he really did forgive you that much? If he doesn't even remember your sins? We can't even do that for each other. So be zealous, friends, to repent. Don't be afraid of repenting. And don't do it because you're afraid of losing God's favor. Do it because you already have God's favor. You're safe. You're free. Okay. Briefly, let's turn to the promise. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. It's a wonderful promise. I do think we've misunderstood it a little. Uh, Typically, we think of this verse as talking about evangelism, don't we? Yeah? Jesus knocking on the door. Will you open it? I remember the famous painting hanging in my grandparents' house. You guys know the painting I'm talking about? Jesus standing outside the door. You know, the light is perfectly shining on his face. And he's about to knock on the door. And it's, you know, it's pretty Jesus, but he's knocking on the door. It's fine. Um... That's a good picture of evangelism. Yes, absolutely, but I don't think it's what this verse means. Here he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the church. This is a letter to the church. This is not like an evangelistic crusade or a revival meeting. This is to the church. This is to Christians who have let something come between their relationship with God. Something is off. Something isn't quite right. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you're hiding a sin, and that's causing distance between you and God. Maybe you're avoiding church, and that's causing distance. Maybe you're angry at God about something. Something happened in your life, and you you just can't quite let it go. But something is creating distance between you and God. And notice that even though that's happening, Jesus is moving toward you. He's coming to your door. He's knocking on your door. All that he wants, more than anything, is to restore fellowship with you, to have that again. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of my salvation. Jesus is coming toward you. Our job is just to let down the wall, open the door, restoration. That's what a meal is. In that day, a meal, to share a meal together was to share life. It meant reconciliation. If you, if you had a, a beef with somebody, if you had an issue, and you had them over for a meal, like, that's it. It's quashed. So Jesus is saying, there's something between us here at Laodiceans, and maybe some of you. I'm knocking on your door. I want to come in and eat with you, reconcile, dine, be, have the relationship restored. I want you to remember this verse when you feel that distance from the Lord. He is coming toward you. He is knocking. He will try to get your attention. Now, you can resist him. You can choose that. But you have all the power you need in the Holy Spirit not to. You can let him back in no matter what's happened. Remember this verse. He's knocking. He, the, what would make his day more than anything is renewed fellowship with you. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So to those who conquer, Jesus will grant true power, true wealth, true exaltation. Can you imagine sitting on his throne with him? (laughs) These people think they got it good. No, that's good. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll need to leave it there. Would you pray with me? Father, it takes faith and trust on our part to really receive these letters. Some of them are hard, Lord. It's a hard word, and we want to believe, we want faith to believe that you love us. And so you correct us, you, you challenge us, that this is a part of real love, not just affirming us in everything that we're doing, Lord, but the good things to say, yes, good, and the things that need to be corrected to say, get serious about this, repent. I'm telling you that because I love you. So we thank you, Father. We thank you, Son. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for this word today. We pray it would be effectual by your power. We pray that for each person here, there would be something, some takeaway that would come home to them. It's amazing how you speak to us differently with the same truth. So we pray you would do your good work this week in our lives. Make us useful witnesses for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.